Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. From the king of sports books comes the king of sports podcasts. Unleashed. Presented by BetMGM. Here's your hosts, Jerry Ferrara and Olivia Harlan Decker. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Unleashed. You know, Bill Belichick says football season starts after Thanksgiving. Well, in that case, welcome to football season. The leaves are changing and so is the playoff picture. We're going to get to all that. Plus, if you were a Bo Jackson fan, Coming up, we have New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman joining us to discuss his new book. He has so many bestsellers. This one's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. And Packer fans will also love Gunslinger. That's about Brett Favre. I've talked about that one on the show before. I love that book. Uh, I just started reading the Bo Jackson book. It is amazing. He interviewed over 700 people, and there are incredible stories in there. I'm really excited to talk to him. And here are some of his stories. Jerry, you go back a little ways with Jeff, don't you? I go back with Jeff. He it was is one of my favorite writers. I've read all of his books. I used to try to option all of his books as a producer years ago. Now mm-hmm. I think they're all optioned. Yeah, anytime I know there's a Jeff Perlman book in the works or coming, I sort of put it into my schedule to make time to read it. And also now audio-wise, it's a great way to listen to a book too. It's kind of how I consume yeah. it. So no, he's kind of the goat when it comes to some of these sports books he really is oh absolutely yeah his walter payton book is really good yeah oh we have so much to ask him i'm really looking forward to this interview um i'm also really looking forward to hearing how your thanksgiving was i was thinking about you look it was great it was great we hosted 27 adults and six kids and i did just discover something that i did not see so we had some tables in the basement because of just overflow of people down here you know living room there's a little kitchen area and then there's like my gym. It's not a big gym, but it's a nice little thing. And today I'm sure. doing my best version of a workout because I'm tired and I'm looking <laughs> at the floor and I'm like, and I'm thinking, what? 
And one of the kids, I don't know, maybe it was my own, who knows, just had some kind of permanent marker scribbling on the floor. No. Insert like no. the whole length of the beam from mirror to wall. Ugh. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to, like I said, I'm just going to sell the house. I'm just going to put it on the yeah. market, sell the <laughs> house. I say at this point after that party for Thanksgiving, we start over. Oh, and I know the Giants game was a huge part of your day. How did you fare? It sucked, to be honest, because they fought so hard. They and did. they're just undermanned at this point. The injuries are too far gone. I think Dable's been doing a really good job getting the most out of Daniel Jones. Saquon sort of been run into the ground a little bit. It's a lot of, lot of carries this year. But I'm proud. I'm very optimistic and happy. I am not mad at the Giants one bit, even though I would have loved to have seen them win that game. And I think I might have a little unleashed later about some Thanksgiving football stuff. Oh, okay. I'm here for that. How about the NFC East? All four teams would currently make the playoff. It's like, amazing. This is nuts. Yeah, I think yeah. they should have been the Washington contenders instead of the commanders. <laughs> they came out of nowhere. They certainly look like they're a problem. Then you look at Jalen Hurts. You know, not that it was the hardest competition of the week, I will say, but you look at Jalen Hurts and you have to really give him his MVP chance. 157 on That's the ground. Cute. He's in territory now where he's almost by himself. I know, which if you had told me this a couple weeks ago, we wouldn't have believed that because everyone was hot on Josh Allen for like the first half of the season. And now he's running away with it. Literally, literally running away with it. Um, also in that game, Packers-Eagles, betters could cash in on the over in the first 30 minutes. That game was just gunfire. That was so exciting to watch. How much are you, but are you watching all start to finish of the pack? Because that's what I respect about these Browns fans that I come across there. And, and they screwed a lot of people with that win. I think there was a lot of bucks, parlays and money lines and teasers that they almost screwed or did screw, but they still watch the games. All these Browns fans, like there's something to watch. Are you watching these Packer games still? Like we could still get in mathematically. Yes. And, you know, I went Ugh. to the Thursday night game last week against the Titans. And then this Sunday night, this past Sunday night, how could you look away from that game? Even if you weren't a fan of either team, that was a great game. And then the excitement of Rogers leaving and Jordan Love going in and he sparked something And our rookie receiver. Christian Watson got another touchdown. He's really found something in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's it's you're going to see it on every talk show this week, right? Should Aaron Rodgers call it a season? And then we start the charade of all offseason what's he gonna do what's the team gonna do you know as a Packer fan I'm getting really weary of that I'm getting really run down on this topic but you've got to ask it you know after Jordan Love comes in and does all right what do you think I mean as an outsider as a, as a non-Packer fan so as a non-Packer fan it's so hard to I don't, I don't want to say the word tank but it's so hard to say, all right, let's phone it in the season and make and actually get a really good draft pick here because there's such physical violence in football. I don't think you could just phone it in because if you phone it in, you could get seriously, seriously hurt. Right. So to that degree, I, and, they're, and they're, they're athletes, they're gladiators. There's no phoning it. I, I would like to see if Rodgers really is banged up and we're not seeing the best of Aaron Rodgers, and I know he has the thumb thing. I would just like to see Jordan Love play then. It is a lost season. I'm not saying you need to put such impetus on, well, then you could trade Jordan Love or you could trade Aaron Rodgers. I'm not even going that far. I just want to see Jordan Love play because they are going to have to make some decisions this offseason 
And look, would it be the worst thing in the world? The Packers only won one more game the rest of the year and had a really good draft pick. Yeah. I don't think that's the worst thing. Although Michael Lombardi, friend of the show, who's coming and joining us next week, I listened to his pod and he had a very distinct like, no, Aaron Rodgers is getting $190 billion. He needs to play if he could play. <laughs> so I trust his take more than mine. I just want to see Jordan Love play and see what he could do. I know. He came in in the third quarter. He went six for nine, 113, and that touchdown of Christian Watson I mentioned. I agree because he's in year three, and the Packers need to decide what they want to do with him going into that year four of his rookie contract. It's it's a business decision, and how can you cut a guy, trade a guy, whatever you're going to do with him, if you really haven't given him a shot, and now this season, that could be one upside of this season, is that we can see what we got. Yeah, look, it's a tough spot to be in. And the Packers and, and you Packer fans are really not used to ever even having this talk. That's why I don't mind all the sports talk we're going to get about this because you don't see it with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. You just don't because you're always contenders. You're always in the mix, always a threat. So I do think this is a rare opportunity where you, again, he is banged up. It is confirmed. Aaron Rodgers is banged up. Right. It's not like he's 100% and playing so well or else we wouldn't However, be having this discussion he says he's playing sunday he does he just came out and said he's playing sunday uh rib injury aside thumb injury aside i don't know uh what kind of skeleton is going to be playing quarterback for the packers this weekend but aaron says it's him and listen when it's the chicago bears on the schedule and you've gone yeah. out of your way to talk about how you own them i maybe would say the same thing too uh, right. I'll play this Bears game, and then you know what? Don't they got the Chiefs? Uh, Jordan Love, you go go ahead, go head to head with Mahomes. <laughs> Get in there, kid. Another team that will certainly not be making the playoffs is the LA Rams. I mean, my God, how the mighty have fallen after winning the Super Bowl. Now they're three and eight, and there's no word on when Matt Stafford will return. And to make matters worse, the Lions own their first round pick. So I'm not, I'm not sure Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey are going to want to stick around for a rebuild. And Jalen Ramsey got burned by Travis Kelsey this weekend. He didn't look good. He's kind of hot and cold. What do you think of the Rams? Look, Travis Kelsey burns a lot of people. Uh, that, that connection is just undeniably the best ever. Uh, I'm sorry. No disrespect to any other great tight ends. That's the greatest connection ever. Uh, what do you say with the Rams? They got their Super Bowl. They got that amazing new stadium. And it's weird because I looked this up because I was wondering, should the Rams be in L.A.? I was trying to do this whole reconfiguration. Would okay. it be better if the Raiders were in L.A. and then maybe the Chargers were in Vegas? And then where do we put the Rams? I do know they have a strong L.A. fan base for the I mean, strong using that word liberally. But then I looked at their attendance and they are like top 10 in attendance because I think all the other teams fans show up for their games. So I guess the business model does work if you're OK with 60 percent of the place being filled with the opposing team's fan. Look, they got their championship. It's amazing. They have no draft picks. I know they went they tried to go in on McCaffrey with some late draft picks like in a few years from now. Mm -hmm. I don't know what how much more could you do? It might be time to Aaron Donald will probably retire. Jalen Ramsey, right. you probably got to trade him to a contender and maybe you could get a first round pick or get something. They got, they're going to have to just reload. It's going to be really hard to do that without your draft picks. I mean, the Lions potentially may get like three and six overall this year if this continues Crazy. this way. Yeah. I know. And then 
then they might be ready next year. You know what I mean? They There's a lot to like about the Lions, and there certainly was this weekend as well. So, yeah, if they get a couple pieces, what's not to like about them for this coming season? Yeah, it's we talk about the NBA a lot with the Lakers and the Pelicans and, and trading for those star player that maybe brings you that instant success, but long-term doesn't bring you any. So now if you're the team that traded the superstar, you're kind of sitting back like it's my time now. We see it with the yep. Pelicans. Now you gotta we make fun of Houston Texans on this show, but the Browns stink this year. They stole that game against the Bucks. That's gonna be a good pick for the Texans, unless the Browns really go on a run, mm-hmm. which I don't see happening. Obviously, we know what position the Seattle Seahawks are in with the Russell Wilson trade. So yep. it's bad for the Rams, but they got their championship. And I just think it's going to be a tear it down and rebuild. And it might take a very long time. So let me ask you, theoretically, and you can plug in any sport, any team. If your team went all in to win just one championship like the Rams did, how many years of irrelevancy would you be willing to trade for that? Five years, Hmm. 10 years? I mean, how much is one championship season worth to you? Okay. Wow. That's a wonderful question. I will say... I would do five years for the Giants. Five, because <laughs> it's been five years. It's been longer than that. Yeah. Five years for the Yankees. For the Knicks, I, I will trade my lifetime for one championship because it's been for my lifetime. Champion- oh. Yeah. You give oh. me one, because I do think one Knicks championship is worth three anywhere else in the NBA for the You're fans. Right. I would take on 30 years of irrelevancy for one championship because we've been waiting and been irrelevant waiting for one championship for my entire life. How many of those games would you be at in the playoffs? Oh, as many as as many as I could be. It, it's as many as Bree would allow. <laughs> yeah, if it could be all of them, I'd be there for all of them. I've actually I've been to one Knicks playoff game in the '90s, and it was an incredible experience. There hasn't been many of them in, in modern day. I did not go to any Knicks Hawks two years ago, so that, I'd go to all of them if I could. That'd be fun to go just to see Trey Young. He was so fun in those playoffs. Yes. Not for you. Not for you. No. Great villain, though. Great villain. Love a heel. The NFL slate is so good this week, Jerry. I'm really excited. It's kind of a sneak preview for playoffs, really. Obviously, at the end of the show, we dig deeper into it with Peter Andrew. But real quick, as you're looking at the slate, I mean, Thursday, Bills, Pats. Bills are minus four and a half favorite. We have the big return of Deshaun Watson in Houston. There's a lot to like on this slate. What sticks out to you? Bills Pats on Thursday. That's a great Thursday night game. We deserve that Thursday night game. That has playoff implications. The Pats are in a must win. Obviously, my Giants and Commanders, although that might not light the world on fire offensively, that's a playoff game because right now, they're, like you said, all four NFC East teams are in the playoffs. But, and I'll definitely peek in on the Deshaun game to see what he's got. Oh, that yeah. being said, the two games I have circled as my heavyweight fights. Dolphins, Niners, I know obviously it's AFC, NFC, so you can't really say it's a playoff preview, but these should be two high-level playoff teams. Mm -hmm. What a fun matchup. I just cannot wait to watch that game. And then your Kansas City Chiefs, who are on a nice little run, revenge game, except this time they're going to Cincinnati to play Joe Burrow and the Bengals. And Joe Burrow, Joe Burrow's kind of got the swag back that he found last year. It's starting to get, it's it's Joe Burrow time. That is going to be an insane game. And then just as like a little dessert, a little palate cleanser, Chargers Raiders is always just it's like a psychopathic game. Like you just don't yeah. know. <laughs> I dare you to pick who's going to win that game and be God. right. Yeah. And Vegas is expecting both of those games to be close. Chiefs minus two and a half. Chargers minus two. 
Look, with the Raiders, I mean, they put it on display this past weekend. There are pieces of the Raiders to like, mostly Josh Jacobs, but there's something there at the Raiders that just feels like they're never dead. No, it, yeah, it's it, last year they won so many close games. And, and everyone wondered if they were for real. This year, they've lost right. all those close games, but they're starting to pick it back up. When you look at the roster, you certainly, they have blue chippers all over the place. So, oh, yeah, yeah it, I think we're going to see, they're not going to go quietly. I don't think the Raiders are going to go quietly, although they're the most dysfunctional. By dysfunctional, I mean, you just have no idea. Bipolar, they're a bipolar team. You just have no idea what you are going to get. Okay, so I've been excited to ask you about this game because you live there, uh, Michigan, Ohio State, and you have a ton of Ohio State family members. And I'm just curious if you have confirmation that Columbus is still standing or have they just completely burnt it down? I would say it felt like a funeral in some ways. Yeah. A lot of people looking at the ground, muttering, a lot of my in-laws <laughs> certainly upset. I'm definitely a lot of, fuck Ryan Day! Like, there's just a lot of that. <laughs> it's hard for me because I, I like college football a lot. I watch college football. I don't have a team. So I don't... Well, yes, you do. We've gone over this. Oh, right. Coastal my Carolina. Coastal Carolina, <laughs> which uh, I kind of stopped let's... following their yeah, record after let's... week three. I think they were 3-0 and at one point. Let's check on them. Let's see, old Coastal Carolina. Yeah, how are they doing? How long this is taking me? Well, when you type in Coastal Carolina and Google, brings the up a beach, an Airbnb on the beach. Near. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, give me a second. The Chancellor, what's their name? The Chancellor, Chanticleers. Chanticleers. Oh, hey, they're six and two, tied with James Madison up in the Sun Belt. They're doing all right. There we go. See, I, I they're nine and two overall, six and two in conference. So I felt two <laughs> losses. I get it, but. uh no, they it, it's a it's a real thing over here. Some of Bree's cousins go to Ohio State, and okay. uh, I, I did a little temperature check there. The vibes are not good. So I understand because Ryan Day coached a horrible game. He coached scared. They had punts on the Michigan forty three in their own forty nine. They were so timid. They were terrible on both sides of the ball. And think about this with Michigan. They were the underdog. They were on the road. They were without their best player. And Jim Harbaugh coached a beautiful game. Like everyone's saying it's it's his best game he's ever coached. And it's a lot of college coaches' best game ever coached. They were dominant from the start. They adjusted so perfectly. And now Harbaugh is 2-0 in the last two years. He started 0-5 in this series. So it's crazy. Their quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, remember we had Pat Forty on early on the season and he was walking us through the Michigan quarterback controversy. Well, J.J. McCarthy said that they knew Ohio State would try to stop their run game. So they went deep. They aired it out, obviously, right? You don't need to be a scout to figure that one out. And he was so impressive. Michigan tipped a tail was so impressive. But now Cade McNamara, who was the backup, remember he was going to be the starter. He has entered the transfer portal. So. In college football, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, and you talk about Pat Forty. I remember asking him specifically about the two-quarterback thing, and he did say, though, he made that great point with Harbaugh that, you know, he was just getting the guy reps for the transfer portal, which just tells me that this team is also fighting hard for Harbaugh. And then the run game, which did not get going right away. I mean, Donovan Evers finished with 216 yards or something like that with two TD. It was just a beating. It was an old-fashioned butt kicking and i'm excited to see i mean michigan i think they should have no problems 
winning next week, and uh, it's going to be a poor Ohio State. They we got to we're expanding, right? This is a good lesson for expanding because right. it really is just one bad week, and they're on the outside looking in, and probably will stay that way. Right, and I'm going to talk more about that in my Unleashed because don't say poor Ohio State. They laid an egg. <laughs> this is what happened. So now the college football playoffs. So far as we go into conference championship week. Georgia one, Michigan two, although there are a lot of people who make a good argument, Michigan should be one, TCU three, USC four. So unless we have a major upset on Saturday, those are set. Seeding might change a little bit, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm worried the playoff committee may screw this whole thing up because the only playoff implications are really the Pac-12 and Big 12 games. So it's interesting. Can I go ahead and get right to my Unleashed because I can't hold back any longer? I feel like you're warmed <laughs> up and ready to go. Let's do it. It's time to Unleash. College football teams playing in their conference championship game should not be penalized for a poor performance or even a slight loss in an extra game that other teams don't have to play. It's a 12-game regular season. This is the 13th week, 13th game. And you're telling me if Georgia went 12-0, if Michigan went 12-0 and loses in this game that some other teams aren't having to play, that someone else can get jumped. So those two teams, they're safe. They're fine. It's USC and TCU who could screw everything up here and let teams who didn't play in this weekend slate sneak into the college football playoff, rested, recovered, healthy, right? Everything about it. So, Jerry, this is the ninth college football playoff, right? And historically, three times we have seen an 11-1 team get in the playoff without playing in their conference championship. I think that's crazy. Most recently, a great example was when Alabama got in because number four undefeated Wisconsin lost in the Big Ten championship game. And Alabama was able to sneak in there and Wisconsin then just had the one loss in week 13. So the other two contenders for this year's scenario, as we talked about Ohio State and Alabama, they don't play this weekend. Ohio State and Alabama, by not winning their division, gets a bye. And it's it's not right that they still have a path. Like I said, we've seen it happen before three times. And Alabama has two losses. I don't think you should be punished for having to climb that 13th hurdle. So I think this weekend should only count for seeding. If UGA loses, they're still in. If they lose close and Michigan does really, really well, they could switch. I could see Michigan going to one. I'm okay with that. Like I mentioned real quick as a tangent, people making the argument Michigan should be one, Georgia should be two right now is because Michigan's best win, which is over Ohio State, is better than UGA's best win over Tennessee. Michigan's second best win is over Penn State, and people think that's much better than Georgia's best win over Oregon. So see, Jerry, this whew, this stuff is confusing. And it does come down because people say they pass the eye test. If they really can't think of a reason why they want a team in the playoff, they'll just pull up some of that bullshit. So I don't want USC to lose, TCU to lose, and Alabama or Ohio State get in because they didn't play a game this weekend. And I'm okay. Last thing, I'm okay with Utah beating out USC for a spot because it is a rematch and Utah had already won it. So I can say that the Pac-12 championship, that can be like a play-in game. But again, it, all this stuff is very confusing. And I just don't think another conference's loss in their championship game should let a team from another conference slip in. 
That's a great unleash. I felt <laughs> I'm gonna go on record and say, and you've had a lot of bangers for your unleash. I'm gonna go on record and say that one. Do the breakout for that. I think we have to break. I think we have to do the Instagram, Twitter breakout for that unleash because I felt you there. Ooh. I think you're right, a hundred percent. And I think college, they're just trying to figure out a way to. They're limping to the expanded playoff. I think is what's happening. I know. But I'm with you. I am 100% with you. It would be very, very strange. Well, let me just ask you this before I do my Unleashed. Who do you think Georgia would like to avoid? Say they, they stick with the number one seed, which is more than likely. Who do you yeah. think they want to avoid for that four seed? Who do you not want to see rolling in? Well, look, USC, top to bottom, they're not the strongest team. But Caleb Williams is a bona fide star. He's the clear-cut favorite for Heisman. He can pull off amazing things. He's a jaw-dropping quarterback. So I just don't trust going against that. And here I am speaking as a Georgia fan, a little biased too, but I think that's probably who UGA doesn't want to face. TCU doesn't scare me so much, but USC and Caleb Williams would be a handful for any team, even the nation's leading defense. Well, listen, my Unleashed is not nearly going to be as passionate as yours <laughs> and filled with logic and things that actually track. <laughs> but that being said, you know, at this point, I am all about circumventing the expected. Let's try to rid ourselves of some of the traditions. I get it. Some of them we like to hold on to. And this is counterintuitive to the game we watched on Thanksgiving because the Lions were very, very entertaining on Thanksgiving. That was a great game versus the Bills, arguably the best game of the slate. Oh, that yeah. being said, can we get off the Lions and the Cowboys always playing on Thanksgiving? I get, the, I get the tradition. I love it. It's been long enough. Maybe can we have one of them play and they alternate every year on Thanksgiving? Because I really enjoyed Pat's Vikings. It was really nice to see just that kind of matchup. So maybe we have either Dallas or Detroit play and for that year. And then the other two games are filled with just teams we've never really seen on Thanksgiving before. And then next year, it'll be Detroit's turn. Do we really have to have both the Cowboys and the Lions every year on Thanksgiving? So half break tradition, give me one. And now listen to this. This is the one that you're going to roll your eyes at. <laughs> I get the three game. Maybe we drop the two because it is hard to watch three games on Thanksgiving. It is. So maybe we drop down the two games on Thanksgiving. And then maybe we put the third game on Friday. Boom. A day we're all, all just sitting around recovering and we're all just like, oh, why did we eat so much? Why did we drink so much? I'm so tired. I don't want to move. What better yeah. thing to do than to have like a nice 1 p.m. or 4 p.m. game? Imagine if that Bills-Pats game was just 4 p.m. the next day. You'd be psyched on Friday. I'll tell you why, because college football kind of owns that Friday. Yeah, they, they could have Saturday. <laughs> they own Saturday. No, that's a, that's a big day in college football is that Ugh. Friday. I guess that's my college. Well, the main unleashed part was get rid of one of the Lions or the Cowboys and have them. They could just alternate every year. You guys don't get to own Thanksgiving forever. This is not a cheap shot at Lions fans. You guys have stunk for 100 years, and this year you're very fun to watch. I don't understand why you deserve to be on Thanksgiving. You've done nothing to deserve to play on Thanksgiving every year. I disagree purely for the sake of tradition. I'm a sucker for tradition. I don't even know why those two teams play on Thanksgiving. Do you? No, that exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I know more. I don't care. Right. I know more about college football than I do about why those teams play <laughs> on Thanksgiving. 
Oh my gosh. Well, you know who knows a lot more than the two of us is our guest, Jeff Perlman. Let's go ahead and bring him in. From the 86 Mets to the 90s Cowboys and from Walter Payton to Barry Bonds, he's the author of some of the best sports books ever written. We can both attest to that. His latest is called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It's a bestseller and he is going to have so many good stories for us today. Let's bring in Jeff Perlman. Okay, Jeff, this book is another incredible read. I'm so glad you sent me a copy. I've started it over Thanksgiving break. As always, you go into such great detail about the man, not just the athlete. You talk to their family, their friends, everyone. So when you're writing these books, does it feel like you're almost thinking like them, living with them? Does it feel like you almost take them on? I wrote a book years ago about Walter Payton. It was called Sweetness. And there was this moment, one night I took a run I've told my kids about this. It was so weird. I was taking a run. I was living in New Rochelle, New York. I was running and I felt like Walter Payton was running next to me. I was deep in it all. And I just like, wow. I almost was like having some delusional conversation with Walter Payton. It's so weird. It sounds like I was on drugs and I really wasn't. And um, you actually get to that point when you research and research and research and all you do, it's not a healthy way to live. Like all you do is think about one person all the time, nonstop. And my wife is like, I don't want to hear any more about Bo Jackson. My kids are like, I don't want to hear any more about Bo Jackson. But all you want to do is talk about Bo Jackson. So yeah, it's very immersive and very weird. The title is a great one. Is the title something that you work off of from the beginning? Like in your mind, you kind of know, or is it you have to do all the research, start putting the words on paper? So the last folk hero, I mean, that is that that's the first person I really could think of is Bo Jackson. Oh. Well, I appreciate that. It actually wasn't, um, what happened is there's a really great writer named Joe Posnanski who's written a lot about baseball through the years. And at some point he referred to Bo Jackson, something he wrote as the last folk hero. And he was actually referring to the, um, the famous sort of Bo Jackson throwing out Harold Reynolds at home plate in Seattle. Oh yeah. And if you watch, which is great. And if you watch a replay and you probably wouldn't even be aware of this unless you watch it, we never actually see Bo release the ball. Like, um, because it was shot with one camera. So the camera goes to Harold Reynolds rounding third. You never see Bo release the ball. And Joe is writing about how with Bo, so much of what he did and so many of his feats, we don't actually have literal documentation of. And even this famous play, we don't see it all. And he said he really is the last folk hero because nowadays, even someone like Shohei Otani, way before he came to the Angels, we had video of him in Japan, even though we're miles and miles away of doing things. And with Bo, he ran a 41340 at Auburn. We don't see it. He ran a 417 on grass with the Raiders in camp. We don't see it. All these plays he did, these things he did in high school. He won back to back state decathlon championships at Alabama. We don't have any video of it. So a lot of it really feels like folklore when it comes to him. Yeah. I mean, the size and speed, he's, it's like he's built in a lab. He's faster than Tyree Kill, like you mentioned, and he's 30 pounds bigger. So when there's so much to marvel at in both football and baseball, was there a story that did come up that you found out not to be true that was a myth? Yeah, actually, it's kind of funny. He wrote an autobiography in 1990 called Bo Knows Bo, and he did it with Dick Schaap. It was a book I loved when yeah. I was younger. Right? It was like a definitive sports biography. Yeah, for sure. It went to number two on the New York Times list. It was like a big seller. And when I was pitching this book, my book, to different publishing houses, I talked about this thing Bo wrote about in his book, which is that at Auburn, he went 0 for his first 21 in baseball with 21 strikeouts. So 0 for 21, and he struck out all 21 times. And I kept saying everyone, his recovery from that is just amazing. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. And, and I would interview people from Auburn baseball from back then, and they'd say, yeah, 0 for 21, 0 for 21. It's crazy, 0 for 21, 21 strikeouts. 
But then I start digging through the old, like uh, Auburn's wonderful sports information department sent me all the box scores. First game, Illinois State, two for five. <laughs> Wait, what? I mean, so they were also like, wow. in the same book, he wrote about his first ever college football run. It was a game against Wake Forest his freshman year. And in his book, he plowed into the line for no game. Well, no gain. Why well, watch a video of that game and his first run is a handoff up the gut for nine yards. So I'm not saying he's lying in any way, shape or form, but I do think memory is a tricky thing. And one of the mm. important things about biography and maybe hopefully biographers is you go back and you confirm and you reconfirm and you check and you check and you find out that's things that you thought were actually aren't. It's fascinating. Yeah, that's something I, I, I've spent hours on YouTube watching just Bo Jackson throwing people out because yeah. uh, he would throw the ball and the ball would actually still be picking up speed as it would enter either the first baseman or the third baseman or the catcher's glove, which I always thought was insane. And something I think that adds to his legend and I'm pretty obsessed with this and I'm trying to work on stuff. Like, I don't think we'll, we'll probably, we'll never see a dual athlete again, right? Fair to say, or at least baseball, football. I know Dion did it and he was healthier than Bo Jackson. So that certainly helped him. But yeah, I don't, I just think if you're an amazing football player, you're going to go play football. And we've seen people toy with the notion of like Russell Wilson. Oh, I got drafted fifth round. Right. I don't think we ever see that again. It's kind of a bummer. I've written about guys, you know, I wrote about a Brett Favre biography, wrote, wrote a Walter Payton biography, wrote a Bo biography. I don't know, Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry growing up in the Mets, all these different guys. And what they all sort of shared from their boyhoods is they went out in yards and beat the crap out of each other. And they played tackle football with their buddies. They were leaping over ditches and climbing over fences and finding, making up games in the yard, finding rocks and throwing them and finding stick, all that stuff. And nowadays, out here in Southern California, it's ridiculous. Like some kid is seven years old and he even shows slight talent pitching. Well, the next thing you know, there's some guy who used to pitch for AAA Walla Walla and he's, he's a pitching coach now. We need to get him with that. And, but mom, I want to play basketball. No, no, no. We're going to have you because those two other kids up the block, they're already in this program. That's amazing. And it helps develop pitchers. And all of a sudden we've wiped out, just wiped out generations of should have been multi-sport athletes. And what I think we've done uh, along with that is really killed much of the joy of childhood, which is playing mm -hmm. kill the carrier in your yard, which is playing pickup hoops, which is playing multiple sports. So there'll probably be other ones who come along, but few and far in between. That's a really good point, especially all as parents. I think that's important to remember. My husband always tells a story, his neighborhood players, they played a game called Sam at the goal line, and he just <laughs> had to stand there and just get tackled. Why do you think Bo first picked baseball? Oh, well, it's, it's actually a good story. So he, um, Bo was drafted. So Bo was playing baseball and football at Auburn. And uh, he was very good at both. But he, you know, he was a Heisman Trophy winner in football. And he was going to make a lot more money in football. And it's his, uh, it's his senior year at Auburn. He has already won the Heisman Trophy. He's playing baseball. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are coming off of a 2-14 and 14 season. They suck. They're going to have the number one pick in the draft. The owner of the Buccaneers, Hugh Culverhouse, sends his private plane to Auburn to pick Bo up the morning of a Auburn baseball game, fly him to Tampa Bay for a physical and then fly him back for the game. And back in the day in the SEC, you could not be pro in one sport, amateur in another in any way, shape or form. So Auburn is playing Alabama, Birmingham that night at Auburn. The coach is Hal Barrett and he's like, where's Bo? And another pl player is like, uh, yeah, he flew to Tampa. And I was like, he, he did what? He's like, yeah, he flew to Tampa on the Bucks plane. He's like, please tell me you're kidding. Please tell me you're kidding. Mm -hmm. Wasn't kidding. He actually lost his eligibility from that flight. 
the funny follow-up is the Buccaneer, he swears off the Buccaneers at that point. He's basically like, F the Buccaneers. I'm never playing for this team, blah, blah, blah. The Buccaneers get the number one pick. They draft Bo anyway. The owner is convinced he's going to be able to sign him. One of my favorite moments in the book and favorite moments of reporting ever is um, Bo flies to Tampa to, to meet with the Buccaneers after the draft because his agents say you should. Steve Young is a quarterback for the Bucs. And the owner of the Buccaneers, Hugh Culverhouse, says to Steve Young, let's come with me. I want to take Bo out for a steak dinner. Help me woo Bo Jackson. So it's Steve Young. It's Hugh Culverhouse. It's Bo Jackson. Hugh Culverhouse excuses himself from the table. And Bo Jackson leans into Steve Young and he goes, Steve, just so you know, there's no effing way I ever sign with this team. <laughs> and Steve Young goes, all right, man, my work is done. Let's just eat. So he was... The Buccaneers really forced his hand and made him say, to hell with you. I'm not playing for you. I told you I wouldn't play with you. And then the Royals came along and made him a really good offer. Yeah. And on paper, though, with the Raiders, it, it certainly seemed like it was the perfect fit, right? My first memories of Bo Jackson are honestly Tech Mobile, like so many other kids my uh -huh. age. It wasn't always the perfect fit, though, organizationally for him, right? Because it was a little hazy for me being a kid watching, but I just always remember they were talking about Bo and the Raiders not necessarily being a match made in heaven. Well, the issue was they already had Marcus Allen, right. who was a great, also a Heisman Trophy winning halfback and really good. It's funny, Marcus Allen was much more beloved as a Raider than Bo Jackson. The, the players on the Raiders just loved Marcus Allen, loved everything about him. And when Bo came along, Marcus Allen actually shifted to fullback and did it willingly. And if you watch that Monday night game where Bo goes crazy, all those blocks are set up by Marcus Allen. So it wasn't an ideal fit as far as sort of two halfbacks lined up together. But Marcus Allen was such a freaking consummate professional that he made it work. And the funny thing also is, since we're here, since Olivia, you have the Packer ties. In 1989, the Green Bay Packers draft Tony Manderitz, number two overall. And that's like the draft where the, the only guy you didn't want to draft was Tony Manderitz. That's, <laughs> that's Deion Sanders, Troy Aikman, you know, Barry Sanders, the whole thing. Packers take Tony Manderitz, number two. He holds out because he doesn't want to play in Green Bay. And Al Davis calls the Packers and offers Bo Jackson for the rights of Tony Mandrich and uh, the Packers turn him down and Bo Jackson stays with the Raiders. That would have been a good deal for the Green Bay Packers. You would have had Brett Favre and Bo Jackson. <laughs> Olivia, that's got to hurt. That's got to hurt. I'm I sorry. Know. And 1989, I think that was my grandpa's first year with the Packers. So I wonder if he was in that draft room. I'm hoping not. No, we're going to yeah. say he wasn't. Let's just he say was. he, was okay. he wasn't. No, I did my research. Wasn't there. Was out getting a burger the whole time. <laughs> got it. Whew. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious with Bo, do you think there was a good fit for him in the NFL? Maybe if he could have played for one city like Deion Sanders in Atlanta. I think he was made for a small market. He wasn't a guy mm -hmm. going out. He wasn't a guy partying. He was married at that point, had kids, had kind of sowed his oats at Auburn. I actually think a market like Atlanta would have been great for him. A Southern market playing in front of sort of, he had a big family playing in front of relatives. Kansas City and baseball was a great market for him. Kansas City is like the mm -hmm. perfect city for a guy like that size-wise. So, you know, Chiefs, just small to mid-major. He was not a big city guy. Out of, he was drafted out of high school in the second round by the New York Yankees. And it's actually funny. The Yankees draft him super high, were really into him, thought he was going to be a megastar. The scout was a guy named Gus Palouse. He goes to knock on his door, and Bo Jackson won't answer the door. He calls. Bo Jackson won't pick up the phone. They call Bo Jackson's high school coach and say, um, we want to fly you and Bo to New York for Yankees Red Sox. We just want to fly you there to show you what we have to offer. Bo's high school coach goes to Bo and he's like, Yankees Red Sox, we can go. <laughs> didn't want to do it. Was terrified of New York, had no interest in New York, didn't even know the Yankees and Red wow. Sox were a rivalry. Green Bay, weirdly, I don't know about the cold, but market-wise would have been a great market for Bo Jackson. Sure.
The other thing that always stood out to me with Bo as a kid, I mentioned Tecmo Bowl, but then, I, you know, and me being like a sneakerhead and all those campaigns that Nike started doing when they really started picking up steam. I always think somehow too, we always still hear Bo knows and stuff like that. It's it somehow, we, I almost feel like we talk about it enough for like what that campaign was and what that shoe was. It was, if you remember back then, it was either like Jordans, which were super high and clunky. And that's really it. I mean, I also loved like the Michael Chang Reebok pumps. Outside of that, there was nothing. And I just feel like he never really got enough credit for however the, I don't know what he had to do with the actual impetus of, hey, I want a cross trainer. But mm. that campaign and that shoe, I think, is part of what we see a lot today still. Oh, yeah. It's one of the biggest, the whole Bo Nose campaign is one of the biggest ad campaigns of all time. Yeah. One of the greatest moments in marketing and sports crossover history is, um, so 1989, Bo made his only Major League All-Star game. And he was starting. And Tony La Russa was a manager for the American League. He had Bo lead off just for the moment. And it was in Anaheim. Beautiful day. Picture perfect day. This is when people watch the All-Star game like en masse. Like it was a national viewing audience. In the booth, Vin Scully and Ronald Reagan calling the game. <laughs> Bo Jackson leads off, second pitch of the game. He hits a dead homer straight to center field. Beautiful, trotting around the bases, looks like a god. That same game, in the fourth inning, Nike made this major ad buy to premiere the Bo You Don't Know Diddley ad with Bo Diddley and all the other. And so they were all, all the Nike executives had met up at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in Manhattan to watch the game. Because this game meant everything to Nike. This was the big unveiling of this ad campaign. Bo hits a home run. And in Mickey Mantle's restaurant, all these Nike ad execs are going crazy. <laughs> they're jumping up and down. They're hugging. They're screaming. All the other patrons are sure like, what? well, I don't know what the hell is going on here. But it was a great moment of synergy, sports, marketing, everything coming together. And that campaign just skyrocketed. And the funny thing also, interestingly of it, Bo was not very charismatic. Bo had a severe stutter. And if you watch those ads, he's, in that ad, he says nothing. In all the ads together, he probably says six words total. It's not about what he right. said. It's about what he symbolized. The craziest thing to me with Bo Jackson now is that he just disappeared. He's a grandpa in suburban Chicago. I know you spoke with him, but he didn't want to be interviewed for the book. Why do you think he's so private? What do you know of his life now or his thoughts on the book or on his career? So the thing I love about him, and in a way, the thing that worked for this book, like if he were like now like doing color commentating, Raider games, mm -hmm. there'd be much less mystique to him, right? Yep. If he was out all the time, hey, I'm Bo Jackson. If he was always commenting on, I'm better than Derrick Henry or I'm better than Mike Trout, like it would kind of ruin the illusion of it all. And the beauty is really the illusion that he was here, he was this prominent guy, poof, he gets hurt and he kind of vanishes. And that's sort of the appeal of it all. He lives in Burr Ridge, Illinois. He owns a bunch of companies, he shovels his own driveway. He's been married for almost 40 years. He has three kids. He recently had a grandson. He does autograph signings every now and then. He's super, super insanely guarded. I spoke to him at the beginning of this project for about 30 minutes on the phone. He was lovely. He said, um, I get asked to do things all the time. I'm not, I'm not going to help you. I don't have a problem with you writing the book, but I'm just, I'm like, he just doesn't want a big neon sign over his head wow. saying I'm Bo Jackson, which I kind of respect, to be honest with you. I never right. take any offense to that. I kind of respect the, the dignity of it. But have you talked with him since it came out? No, this is what I've been told. I, I, I haven't really talked <laughs> about this. He, the book comes out and there is a part when he was in college at Auburn, when he was kind of engaged, sort of kind of to two women at the same time. And whatever, <laughs> he was 23 years old. I'm just saying like, we do, we do, people do do stupid things when you're 23 years old. 
yes. when you're writing a full biography of someone's life, you do have to at least sort of, and you find out these kind of things, you got to write about it. It's not salacious, <laughs> it's a thing. But I was told his wife wasn't crazy about that. So, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> which I get, I actually do get, sure. like I get, of course. So he tweeted out something like, if a biography is unauthorized, blah, 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 you need to get it from the real source. Oh. I interviewed 720 people for this book. Bo Jackson, that book, Bo Knows Bo, he, um, he wrote it with Dick Schaap, which means Dick Schaap wrote it and he interviewed Bo yeah. a million times for it. Dick Schaap donated all his notes, everything, all the audio recordings to the Auburn University Library. Someone made me aware of that. So when I, I basically had 500 pages of typed out Bo Jackson interviews, most of which had never been used before from when Bo was right. interviewed by Dick Schaap in 1989. So I busted my ass on this. Yeah. <laughs> And I want to talk about some of your other stuff because Olivia, Jeff and I have talked over the years because I've been a fan of his work forever. I've always been saying, this book's a movie, this book's a show, this book's a movie, this book's totally. a show. I, it just was such a no-brainer to me and to, and to you too, I think, Jeff. Uh, but it really, when I heard about Showtime, I'll, I'll tell you, like the first thing that went through my head was amazing book to make into a show. I cannot wait to see how they execute it. And I always wonder, like, can you actually cast Magic Johnson? Can you cast Kareem? Can you? And I was just, as an actor too, I'm just curious. Like, I, I just want to see how that goes. And what a delight because everyone in that show, I never for one second bumped on the fact of like, ah, that's not Magic. I just was in. It sucked me in. I thought the performances were great. And what makes me most happy now is I want this to be a run on Jeff Perlman books because I always said 86 Mets, that's to me the greatest sports story that we have not seen really on screen. That's always been, I'm a Yankee fan saying right. that. I know Olivia, you probably have some gunslinger stuff. So uh, yeah, what was that feeling like seeing one of your books be really be put on the big, small, big screen? Cause it's HBO. Wait, so I know like, I mean, serious. Like I know this is like kind of old hat for you to a certain degree. Like you've been through it. You've been through TV. You've been on different shows. I've been very successful, but I feel like for me personally, there was a moment. I really mean this. Like, First of all, people option your stuff and you never think anything's going to come of it. And someone will give you a little money and they'll say, oh, I know someone who knows someone. You know how it is. And it's always like nonsense. And I had that happen a lot. So when this happened, it was a huge moment for me. And they had this premiere party in LA. And my wife was out of town, but I took my two kids. They're both teenagers. And there was this moment, my son at the time, I think was 14 and my daughter was 17. And um, they, had a, they had a cigar bar. They had a rolling your cigar bar. My 17-year-old daughter goes, we should smoke a cigar. We should totally smoke a cigar. <laughs> And it was me, my 17-year-old daughter, my 14-year-old son, the actor Michael Chiklis and his family, and we're, we're smoking cigars. I don't even smoke cigars. And certainly my kids don't smoke cigars, at least not that I know of. And we're having this moment, and it's on a show based on a book I wrote. It was just one of the greatest moments of my life. It really was one of the most rewarding, emotional moments of my life. And that, it's like, my parents don't care about sports at all, my parents, but they see this and like, you could see the pride in them. I know it sounds corny, but it's really true. Like the pride that they have and it means something to them. And even just people you went to high school with or college with who are like, oh my God, oh my God. It's cool that it brings some light to people, especially during the pandemic, during that rough spell. It just really brought something to people and to me. So it was, it was freaking amazing. It was great. Oh, that is an awesome story. And I think it's going to be more of that because now the seal is broken. We've all seen you can cast Magic. You can cast Chris. You can yeah. cast Daryl Strawberry. You can cast Dwight Gooden. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, I, I think I, I just have always been a fan. So I'm excited to see. I don't know if you have a preference of if you could pick any one of your books to be made next. I don't know if you have a preference, but uh, it's funny. The one book that has never been optioned. So different books get optioned. That's not a bragging point. Like that just happens. Right. You write books and people option books. The one book that's never been optioned is my Walter Payton book, Sweetness. And I just mm. consider his life to be so dramatic. And obviously coming from rural, rural Mississippi, becoming the superstar megastar in Chicago, and then really falling into this post-career depression, and then having this kind of courageous battle at the end of his life with bile duct cancer. It just feels really narrative to me, but nobody's shown any interest. That would be the one though, actually, in a weird way. I hmm. love that book. Speaking of rural Mississippi, what yeah. drew you to Brett Favre's story? Because Gunslinger has been one of my favorite books before you and I ever discussed that. Yeah, it's actually funny. I didn't want to write a Favre book. Here's what happened. I, uh, my dream book was a book about the USFL, the old United States Football League from the 1980s. And I couldn't get a deal ever. I could not get a deal for the USFL book. Nobody, my agent, who's great, literally said to me, Jeff, because I kept bringing it up. He's like, nobody wants an F in USFL book. <laughs> and I was like, I know I can get a deal. I know I can get a deal. So a uh, publishing uh, company, Helen uh, Mifflin, I pitched far because I thought he is iconic. He's a really interesting story, et cetera, et cetera. But I said, I'll do it, but I want to be able to do this USFL book. So I took a little less money for Favre and they let me write this USFL book. And the USFL book made the New York Times list, which was like a real vindictive moment for me. Or not vindictive, yeah. <laughs> glorious moment for me. Favre was fascinating. I, Favre ended up being one of the most interesting books I've ever worked on. And one of the weirdest moments in my career, period, is um, I DM'd his, his sister, Brandy, on Facebook before I went to Mississippi. And I said, hey, my name's Jeff Perum. I'm working on a book. And this is before Brett even said anything to me. And I was like, I'm working on this book. I'm going to be in Mississippi. Is there any way you'd want to get coffee? And she said, well, DM me when you come down. Hmm. Well, I go to Mississippi. I'm in the kill Mississippi where Brett's from. And um, I DM her. And she's like, well, my mom and I are at the house. Why don't you just come by the house? Now, Brett Favre has not agreed to talk to me, right? But I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I, uh, I go to the house. It's Brett's childhood home on like Favre Lane in Mississippi. The kill <laughs> oh Mississippi. Gosh. And I'm sitting there with his mom, Benita, who's lovely. His sister, Brandy, lovely. And, and we're talking. And at one point, his mom says, uh, so has, is Brett talking to you for the book? And to me, this is like, this is the kiss of death. This is the moment where they're like, oh, well, I go, no, I, I don't know if he's going to or not, but he hasn't agreed to yet. And she goes, all right. And she literally sent me home with his scrapbooks. She sent me home <laughs> to New York, New York with scrapbooks, which I borrowed, photocopied, sent back. It was unbelievable. And I remember... This is true story. I was driving away from their house and I called my wife, Catherine, and I'm like, uh, I just had a great experience with Brett Favre's mom and sister. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but Brett hasn't agreed to talk to you. And I was like, yeah, but they're really cool. They don't mind. And she's like, don't you think that's a little weird? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, it's really weird. And then later on, I was like, oh, that is really weird. She's like, imagine if someone's doing a book on you, you didn't want them to. And your mom and dad just decided to talk anyway. But it worked out. I mean, it was great. I yeah, talked to his entire family. Everyone. You know what? This is like fast forward to now. This is what it's like to have your parents on Twitter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People ask them stuff. All, I, I think my mom tweeted Elon Musk the other day or something. Oh, I don't no. know. This is like what it's like when your parents are on Twitter. That's the modern day version. Mama Favre with the scrapbooks. That's, a, yeah. that's incredible. That's good. Yeah, well, I've yeah. got to ask, since not everyone's read the book, what is your favorite story? And obviously the narrative on Brett Favre has changed since you wrote the book. But what is your favorite Brett story from that book? 
Well, what I really love is, um, this isn't a story, but kind of a whole thing, is when he was playing in high school in Mississippi, his dad, Irv, was a coach. And um, they had a halfback named Charles Burton, who was really good, but he was just your prototypical high school halfback. He was like 5'9", probably a buck 60. And he, here's your dad, Irv Fire, and he's dedicated to the run. We're going to run the ball. We're going to run the ball. You literally have one of the 10 greatest quarterbacks in NFL, future quarterbacks in NFL history on your team. And he threw the ball six times a game, <laughs> five times a game. He would not throw. And every now and then, Brett would disobey and launch some 80-yarder, and it would be this magnificent moment, and the stands would go crazy. And his dad would be furious at him, absolutely furious at him for disobeying his orders that were going to run and gain four yards. And I just found the dynamic between Brett and Irv, this old-school, hardcore disciplined, we're going to do this coach. And Brett, this wild stallion who just wanted to launch the ball quarterback. And that, you know, it's why he wound up at Southern Miss because nobody knew about him. Literally nobody knew about Brett Favre. He was a, a, didn't exist in a college football landscape. Are you keeping up with what he's going through right now? And what are your thoughts on it now that you're pretty close to his story? I'll, I'll be totally honest about it. I'm horrified and disgusted. I mean, Brett Favre, you're from Mississippi, right? You're from Mississippi. It is a dirt poor state. That's not me projecting. Mm -hmm. It is factually a dirt poor state. It is a poor state in America. There is money that is de designated for welfare recipients. That is money that is needed by people. That's not some, some pork, government pork. Mm -hmm. To have that money diverted and to be involved in some kind of scheme where it's diverted to pay for a volleyball arena at your alma mater because your daughter plays volleyball there, if that's true, which it appears to be, it doesn't just hurt my heart as a guy who wrote that biography. It just disgusts me mm -hmm. as a human being. So mm. not a huge fan of that one. And kind of on a lighter note, I know you're also not a huge fan of the current Packer quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. In fact, I've heard you compare him to Kanye West. <laughs> I've got to know, what is your experience like with Aaron Rodgers? And what, what kind of gets your goat about him? All right, I don't... Um... I don't hate Aaron Rodgers. Like, I think he's a great quarterback. And so when I was, I'll tell you when, this is not the personal reason, but when I was working on the Favre book, I actually, I knew he was playing at a golf tournament and I met him mm -hmm. off the greens at a golf tournament. And I was like, Hey, I introduced my, he literally goes, he goes, yeah, I know who you are. And I was like, I don't think you know who I am, but I'm, he's like, I know who you are. I was like, I'm working on this Favre biography. He goes, Oh yeah, I'll definitely talk. Call my agent, reach out to my agent and we'll set up a time. I called his agent repeatedly, got blown off repeatedly. Then the book comes out. And there's a moment in the book when Aaron Rodgers first met Brett Favre, they were in the Packers like cafeteria or the first time at camp together. And Rodgers says to him, uh, hey, grandpa. And it really rubbed Favre the wrong way. And I got that story verified and verified and verified and verified. And Rodgers denied it. But I know it happened. And I just find that kind of stuff annoying. So honestly, God, I have no animus toward him. I think he's a great quarterback. I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't see any reason he's a bad guy. That kind of stuff annoys the hell out of me as a, as a writer. For sure. And think if just in your daily life, you grab coffee with someone and you're telling them a story that happened a couple years ago and someone else says, no, that didn't happen. How frustrating in your profession that you have to deal with that. I had, I'll tell you something. I had, um, I won't name names, but people can look it up regarding that book, the Favre book. Okay. There was a wide receiver who I had in the book saying something and, and he cursed. He, he cursed in the quote. Okay. Yeah. This is, you can look this up because it's Googleable. And uh, I had it happen and he cursed. This guy goes on Twitter and called me a liar and said, anyone who knows me knows I never curse, blah, 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 blah. I get a DM from another Packer 
I can't even make this up. I get a DM from another Packer who says, hey, call me. A very well-known <laughs> Packer. I call him and he's like, I just want you to know blank, the guy, is totally full of crap. Everyone knows he's full of crap. He's always been full of crap. Don't believe him. Don't get bent out of shape over this. So mm -hmm. these are the journeys you take in this wacky world of sports biography. Oh my gosh. And we get to be the recipients of all this nonsense <laughs> and we love it. I'm having weird okay, feelings because that sounds like yeah. my conversation with my wife where I'm like, wait, didn't you say, I did not say that. Like, I, wait a minute. I, didn't I, say that. I was sitting right there when you said it. No, you don't. You're misremembering. She accuses me of misremembering. Are we married yep. to the same person? We might be. We <laughs> might be. Might be. Oh, thanks for letting me go further into that story. I just, I, I know I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. What's the word about uh, season two showtime? Do we know? Do we have a date? Is it happening? I mean, do you. Summer. I don't know what Summer. role I could have played. I tried to figure it out. I, I don't think I would have fit. So I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at you for not, for me not being on Showtime. And it was cast amazing. So I, I'm just ready for season two. All right. I just want to say episode six, season two, I play a reporter briefly and I filmed it two weeks oh. ago. This is what I want to say to you, Jerry, in particular. I was there for eight hours, maybe nine. <laughs> they shot the same scene a hundred times, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> I got home that night. I had a wig glued to my head, okay, and sideburns glued to my face. I was taking a shower the next morning, and my head is just like a tomato because I had an allergic reaction to the glue they oh, used no. to adhere it. So I actually had to rush to urgent care because everything was swelling on my face. Oh. And I don't know, like, I'm being serious. Wait, serious question for you. I know this isn't my show. It's your show. But like... <laughs> Average number of takes per scene in your life would be what? You did a TV show. So I will say TV, typically they would, you could say they do more because it's a different director every episode or most like every other episode. And they want to make sure they cover everything. With Entourage, for instance, we did a lot of like oneers, like only one shot, but we'd have to do that like 20, 30 times. Because if you have one screw up on the line, you got to start over again. You can't just pick yeah. it up. Yeah, every now and then there's these directors where uh, I will lean over to a fellow actor and be like, yeah, this person's just going to shoot every possible angle and just figure it out. They figure it out later in the edit. You know, they let me shoot as much as I that's like for you would be like, I'm just going to get as much information as I can. And I'll figure out the book later when I get there. That's sometimes what happens with TV. Let's just get as much coverage as we can and we'll figure out what the scene actually looks like later. Not all the time. I just want to say, I did a story years ago for a TV Guide, years ago, about a TV show called Love Monkey. And it was with uh, Tom Cavanaugh and Jason Priestley, okay? And it's my first time on a set. And they shoot the same scene 50 times. I'm literally, I'm there. And at first I'm excited and then I'm just bored. And at the end, I was sitting down to interview Jason Priestley. And I said, um, I'm going to be honest, man, that, this seems kind of boring. And he goes, <laughs> yeah. bro, you have no idea. And I was thinking about that over and over again shooting my scene for the 80th time last week. I think a big underrated part of acting in general is just how to not make it feel like it's take 16 and yep. brokering out your energy. That's why there's coffee too. Coffee gets me through some of those, uh, some of those moments. I can't thank you enough for coming on. I'm super excited. Congrats on this book. Whenever I know there's a Perlman book coming, I sort of try to clear my schedule as much as I can, because I, I, I got to get to it quick before people start spoiling it for me. So uh, yeah, I, my Christmas is kind of set. I think I'm going to actually need a babysitter to read this book to take this so where the kids aren't screaming while I'm reading it. But uh, yeah, nice. The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Couldn't think of a better topic for a book. 
And thanks for coming on. And I hope we get to talk again because that means you're writing another book or written another book. Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Thank of you, course, Jeff. Jeff. Thank you so much. Okay, it's time for one of my favorite parts of the show. Let's get to some Week 13 wagering and more with BetMGM betting analyst, our odds-on favorite, Peter Andrew. Peter, how you doing? Have you recovered from the talking to I sort of gave you last week? It felt a little bit sweeter after the Niners, the Chiefs, the Bills, the Dolphins all took care of business. I think the, the analogy I have for last week is I just needed that little bloop single, and now this is when the batting average comes back up. I was 270, and now I'm back my way towards 300. <laughs> so it, it needed to happen. You just need that win under your belt, and then you can keep going. 270? I don't think there was one player on the Yankees who batted 270. You bat 270, you're, you're like an all-star. That's a good point. I'm talking 96 era, not <laughs> 2022. So yeah, you hit your safe play. It, it came through. You had all the favorites in the world last week. Bills, Dolphins, Niners, Chiefs to win. You basically were even for the week, but now I think, and I said it earlier in the show, I think week 13, this slate is unbelievable. Ooh. I think it's going to be yeah. hard to pick and hard to handicap and pick winners because I do think this is a little sneak preview of the playoffs in a lot of ways because a lot of playoff teams or potential playoff teams facing off. So, Mr. Bloop Single, <laughs> what do you got for us this week, week 13? So you'll notice I've taken a little bit of a different direction here. There's a couple of teased uh, point spreads, but I've gone with yeah. a lot of overs and unders. So to totals to me, I think is the play this week because there's so many close games. Start first, just Thursday night, we'll get out of the play. The, the one game parlay, that's finally going to hit. I think this is a safe one, but still really, really good value. So we saw Harris go out last week for the Pats. So Ramondre Stevenson is the... The premier back now, he's probably going to be playing about 85% of snaps. Anytime touchdown for him. Isaiah McKenzie on the Bills, he has been a red zone target, even with his size. I think that kind of size and speed up the middle. I think, you know, I had a really good week last week on Thanksgiving. Got him to score anytime. And then I've just taken Bills minus four and a half. So cover the spread. Those two anytime touchdowns, that's plus a thousand. So 10 bucks, one unit gives you 110 bucks after that stake and winnings. So I think it's a nice little wet the beak kind of gets you into the football week to, to start things <laughs> off. I like that. I feel good yeah. about all three. Okay. So that's uh, you got one unit, 10 to win one ten. So you got nine left to go. So I feel like uh, that was the appetizer. That was a little bread and soup. Now let's see what we got coming in hardcore. Yeah. So three units on each of these other plays. First one, giants commanders under 41. I think Heineke lasts three out of five weeks under 20 points. Uh, so their offense has, has been struggling. I think Giants have a little bit extra rest because of the Thanksgiving Day uh, game. So they're essentially on over a week of rest. I think that defense will be ready to roll. And Giants offense is going to struggle. I think Slayton's probably their only target in terms of a pass threat. And we all have seen uh, over the last couple of weeks what the defensive line for the commanders can do. So I see a low scoring game. I probably see the Giants win in this one, home at MetLife. But I can certainly see a 20 to 13, 20 to 17 kind of game under 41. Uh, that's the play there. Finns Niners, I think this is wildly mispriced in terms of the number 46 and a half. I get it. Niners, number one defense in the league. 
this to me is a high-scoring game. I think Finns probably have proved they have the best offense, if not second or third best offense in the league, right, right around the Chiefs and the Eagles. I can see them putting up 30 points this game. I think it's going to be relatively close. I can see a field goal game here. But this is not going to be a 13-0 Saints-Niners game like last week. Mm-hmm. Tyreek Hill, Waddle, no joke. Uh, Mostert already talking a little bit trash of, about his old team going back to the Bay. I can see this one being super high scoring. It kind of reminded me of Saints Niners a couple of years ago where it was like 47, 45, something crazy like that. So uh, I see some points here. And then last three units, pains me to do this, but Dolphins plus 10. I think they keep it, like I said, close. 10 points for arguably the second best or third best team in the AFC. Uh, going into San Francisco, I think that's a real fair number to hit. Browns minus one, return of Deshaun Watson. Oh, by the way, against the Texans, his former team, who are oh. horrendous. They are That's awful. an easy one. That's a layup. That's a layup. So pushing that down from seven to one is, seems very, very logical. And Browns team, probably not in the playoffs, but they're fighting towards it. So it's a must win for them, especially against probably the worst team in the NFL. And then Chiefs at the Bengals over 45 and a half. So I've teased that down. That to me is another high scoring game. You got the Bengals mm-hmm. who have who've clearly righted the ship. Chiefs are playing as good as anybody this year. Kelsey's on fire. Mahomes is on fire. So to say that there's not going to be 45 points in a game is, I think, kind of crazy. So taking the over there. The others obviously are minus 110. That one's plus 140. So that's 30 to win 72. I really like the, the card this week. And I, like I said, I've stayed away from some of these point spreads because. There's a lot of really, really close games. So feel good with, with the extra six points on a couple of those. But, but all in all, I think totals are the move this week. Jerry, is there anything there that is a red flag concern for you? I won't say red flag. I like what you did with the Dolphins Niners and like kind of focusing on that game. I do think there's some points. And if you're right on the over, then you're probably right that that game will be less than 10. And even though you're a Niners fan, I mean, all right, so if the Niners win by seven, I'm sure you won't be crying. You'll still be very be happy. Fine. If I had to flag something, I'm not even flagging it. I'm just that Browns minus one at Houston. I know, like, I don't think don't there's tell any me revenge stuff. I'll hot on the Texans again. <laughs> not hot on the Texans, but we're talking about a quarterback who hasn't played football in two years. I'm not saying I'm yeah. hot on the Texans. And by the way, if the if Houston beats the Browns, that only makes the Browns draft pick more valuable, which Houston owns. I'm not saying I like the Texans at all because they are the worst team in football. And I think they've completely given up. They're now shuffling around court. I'm just, that one's got my attention a little bit because I actually do think it's going to be a close game, but I do think the Browns prevail. Other than that, I'm with that. And I like that you picked the Giants commanders under, don't pick the Giants anymore, Pete. Here's why. I just don't want anyone, just keep us underdog. I don't want anyone, like the Giants win when everyone thinks we're going to lose. I don't like when people get on. People got on the train and we've lost two in a row. I don't, I don't even like that. I would get off the train. Just let them, let them win in peace. Fair enough. At some point they have to be taken seriously though. I, th- I, I get your under the radar comment, but like they're not the best team, but they're a decent team. They're, they're the set, most injured they, team. That's for they sure. Are. So I get it. What about if I can shift to the other New York team? What's your take on Mike White going into Minnesota? This is a game that I kind of, I didn't put it in here, but I might take Jets money line. I think they're probably a five or six point dog, but I think I might take the money so line. So you, you want to hear what a maniac, emotional better I could be? I was perusing Bet MGM when I'm making my picks. And then also someone sent me the trailer for like the next episode of that show, White Lotus, which I'm a fan of. And that mm. show creator is named 
is Mike White. So to <laughs> me, that was a clear-cut sign that Mike White and the Jets are going to Look, I have a lot of Jets fans in my life. I love to make fun of them. It's really hard to make fun of them because they are really, really good. And uh, look, I think Mike White played a little bit last year. He had a couple, and then he played a little bit and got destroyed. So curious to see what happens. But yeah, it's, it's a great story. And it's a bit hard lesson for Zach Wilson. The one thing I would say about Mike White is this shows to me, I don't want to bash Zach Wilson, but look how bad Garrett Wilson has been in the weeks that Zach Wilson started. The first couple of weeks when Flacco was playing, two touchdowns, 10-plus receptions, 100-plus yards. Garrett Wilson, who's arguably one of the better wide receivers coming out of the draft last year. Five games of nothing, it felt like. Then Mike White comes in, 90 yards, two touchdowns, ton of targets. They're using him any which way. Like It's exploiting your talent with different guys. That shows to me that Zach Wilson is way too just kind of single-minded in terms of what he's trying to do. And what I really like about Robert Sala, which, you know, he was getting a lot of heat. And remember the whole, I'm keeping the receipts and everyone kind of laughed like, all right, keep them, do whatever you want with them. We don't care. I think the Zach Wilson benching, yes, his play maybe warranted a benching, but I think that press conference was like the final thing. And I think when you see your coach hold the star young quarterback accountable, like, hey, you can't go up after a bad game and basically said you weren't responsible for that. I think coaching wise, I think he fully has that team behind him. It pains me to say that we just did basically a two and a half minute segment on the Jets for no reason at all, other than the <laughs> fact that they're good and they're a great story. Hurts my soul. Last thing, did Zach Wilson play his last game? Barring an injury to someone else, did he play his last game as a Jets starting quarterback? I don't believe so, unless we get a really, truly magical. Look, I, Mike White's a great story. I think he's very talented. I think he makes the easy throw. It was against the Bears, let's not forget, and they're not really even fielding a team at this point. So you can make a believer out of me beating the Buffaloes and the New Englands and, you know, a little, some tougher competition. So no. And he's, what, 22? Do you give up on a 23 or 23? Like, I, I don't think you could fully say it's, it's over. Got to get, like, he's allowed to make a mistake and grow from it. So my answer would be no. Yeah, I feel like he'll be like a Sam Darnold. Like, I feel like he's going to kind of disappear on us here because I think his character has shown he's lost the locker room. Teammates clearly don't want to play for him. They want to play for Mike White, like you mentioned, the Garrett Wilson example. But I think that Robert Sala doing this was the right decision as an organization that's ready to win now. But it certainly didn't do Zach any favors because this is kind of to do that to a young quarterback's confidence is kind of a final stab. We have to stop talking about the Jets. I'm going to have a heart attack on the air. (laughs) I'm literally going to have a heart attack on the air. All right, Pete, let me just say, I do like what you got on the menu this week. And uh, (laughs) if this happens, you might have to graduate from blooper Pete to uh, bloop single to you. Maybe it's a double. Maybe it's a triple. Maybe you touch them all. So thank you as always, Peter Andrew. Good luck this week. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Peter. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Make sure you follow BetMGM across all social media platforms and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode because next week is a really good one, Jerry, too. We have Michael Lombardi joining us. I know you've been uh, campaigning for him. He's been fantastic on the show before. That'll be fun.
Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.